you've worked with so many high performers. What are the first names that come to mind when you think of the epitome of high performers in sport? Uh, well, the one I'd have to go for would be uh, the footballer Petr Cech. Um, and I'd say that for a couple of reasons. I, I think the one is, I think goalkeeping is an underestimated position. And something to consider is that a striker, the best, most expensive striker you can get, will be involved in around half of the goal action in a match. Yeah. A goalkeeper is involved in every single goal action. Mm. So the influence of a goalkeeper, I, I, for whatever reason, I, I think people underestimate. And then the second thing I would say, if you just look at records, just go and look at the records. Nobody compares to Petacek in the Premier League era. Hmm. Nobody comes close. So, you know, for me, that, that's a fairly obvious one. It's an unforgiving position where um, uh, people are, uh, you know, goalkeepers aren't able generally to make excuses um, and they're, they're held accountable. So for me, you know, I, that, that, that's an incredible athlete. And on Petacek specifically then, is it the stats that make you think of him or is there maybe something in his mentality that, you know, you've, you've noticed that sets him apart from the rest of the crowd? Um, well, I, I think if you, if, well, a couple of things, maybe. I mean, the, the fact that he he had a long, successful Premier League career, mm. um, but now he's busy playing ice hockey. Yeah. So he's whatever he was doing as a footballer must have been a good methodology because he's applied it to to ice hockey and is playing at a high level of ice hockey. Yes. And in addition to that, he's a very good drummer, and. You know, he, he must have applied that methodology to drumming as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think from that point of view, I, I, I would say. And, and then also, you know, he, he was a very successful uh, football executive um, that, that he, he was very successful in his role as technical director of Chelsea Football Club. So, you know, this is someone who has actually demonstrated success across uh, a variety of um, uh, environments. Yes, and it's an interesting one, um, the the goalkeeper position, because I, I when I was in university, I played goalkeeper for my varsity team, certainly not at the Premier right. League level. But yeah. one thing I found in that position, and I've played many positions uh, in the game, is that when you're a goalkeeper, I mean, when you're an outfield player, there's so much mm. happening around you at all times. You've always got something to think yeah. about. You've got the balls going past you, you're tracking a runner, you're looking for space, you're engaged in the action, but for some goalkeepers, you could be out of the game for 20 minutes at a time. Mm. And that leaves a lot of time to think, to visualize, to play out any possible scenario, to let self-doubt creep in. Yeah. Would you say that it's probably one of the, the hardest positions to play from a sort of mentality standpoint then? Well, you know, I, I remember I used to coach under eight football yeah. and, um, I remember a scenario where uh, the, the defenders had gone up because they'd got bored of defending and were trying to score a goal and mm. left about a three-on-one with the goalkeeper. And then, you know, the opposition team scored and the defenders run back pointing their fingers at the goalkeeper. And 
you know, for, for that alone, the fact that you're a very easy target to, to bear responsibility, for sure, you need, uh, you need a strong mentality to deal with that. Um, I think you see a similar level of challenge in, um, in opening batsmen, for example, very easy to blame an opening batsman. So you've got to be particularly tough to deal with those kinds of consequences. Um, and, and then, yes, as you say, um, the, the concentration demands are tremendous. Now, the interesting thing about that, and, and you know, maybe a better example of this is the footballer David Luiz. Um, so a defender, now it's not quite as extreme as a goalkeeper, but you can still be out of the game for periods of time. Yeah. And the older David Luiz got, the more interested he, be, he became in the tactics and the tiny details of the game. And he actually realized eventually that you're never out of the game as a defender. You are always involved because you're always making micro adjustments to your position. And if you watch Petr Cech, if you go and watch footage of him playing, also he was never out of the game. He was always doing something. So when you have that very deep understanding of the game, it's not like you're just kind of rocking on your heels and wondering when they're going to come back into your half. Mm -hmm. Now, on the just on the subject of uh, of go concentration and, and goalkeepers, this just came to my mind, and not to comment on the person specifically, but I remember a couple of months ago uh, in an interview, there was uh, the Arsenal goalkeeper Aaron Ramsdale said mm -hmm. that when he plays football, he can probably concentrate for the first fifteen minutes and the last fifteen minutes, but there are huge parts of the game where he finds it hard to to concentrate. And so he has to just think about other things in his mind and he finds himself drifting off. Now, I know it's impossible for you to, to comment on someone you, you don't work with, but when you hear that from an athlete, from a sports psychologist um, standpoint, what are the major things you're looking at with that person? Well, the first thing I would say is well done to him for having the honesty and the bravery to actually be open about that. Because yeah. I think it's really refreshing when an elite athlete uh, talks about the reality rather than just says what they think people want them to say. So, you know, kudos to him for, for having said that. Um, I think, and, and then the second thing I would say is this topical concentration is an incredibly interesting topic. Um, this topic of attention, you know, if you think the entire business of Google or, um, or Facebook is capturing attention, that's what the modern world is about, is attempts to manipulate and control our attention. So the idea that we should have awareness of our attention and gain greater control over our attention, I think is a, a, something that we should all be aware of. And, and in some ways, it's a, it's a bit of a political issue, actually. You know, and you talk about freedom. Well, I want to have freedom to choose. I want to have freedom to choose what it is that I pay attention to. I don't want, to, I want someone else controlling my mind. So the fact that, um, that Ransdale is raising this issue, I, I think it's, a, it's an important topic for us all and something we should all be interested in. Um, I, I think the, the second thing I would say is over and above his honesty and his bravery in actually raising this, I would say, secondly, well done for having the awareness that you've, you, you've actually paid attention to this. Um, and, then, and then I think once you got to that point where you've recognized that you're losing concentration, then you can start to ask yourself questions about how you could manage it better. 
And so then there are a couple of approaches. The one is how can you prepare your, your brain better to concentrate? Could you have slept better? Could you have warmed up better? Could you have, um, could you have, uh, so yes, I'll, I'll maybe stop on that topic there. Then uh, the, the, the second category of concentration would be, can you be more free of rumination? And we all have thoughts that run through our mind and we can ascribe greater or less importance to those thoughts or those voices that we hear. And part of the, the role of uh, a psychology approach like cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, is to become more comfortable with, uh, with uh, anxiety or uncertainty um, and maybe even to pay less attention to voices or worries. So, so what you're doing then is you're less vulnerable to distraction because the distracting voices are not as loud. Yeah. And then the third thing I would say about concentration would be, can I become more interested in what is happening in front of me? And that would be the comment that I said about David Luiz is that he became incredibly interested in the details of the game. And that was then engrossing yeah. because all of us can concentrate if what's in front of us is interesting enough. Um, and sometimes you need to find what is interesting. Hmm. I wonder, because you mentioned there about you coached uh, at an underage level. So you've mm, seen sport yeah. at, at every level. You've seen it at the highest of high levels, you know, World Cups, um, national teams, Premier League. At mm. what level do you think that sports psychology starts to make an active difference in, you know, if you're looking at a team of players, when you bring in sports psychology, at what level of the game does it start to make a difference or give someone an edge? Yeah, well... You know, the, the one thing I say about psychology is that um, psychology is different to being an engineer, for example. You know, I, I'm not an engineer. You're not, I'm guessing. I'm certainly not, no. <laughs> and so if you and I were having an argument with an engineer, basically the engineer knows everything and we know nothing. That's, that's how it goes. You know, if we're talking about building a bridge, nothing that we had to say about building a bridge would be of any value. And the engineer actually knows it all. But a psychologist is not that kind of expert because we're all psychologists. Because part of being human is to be interested in other people. And part of being human is to wonder how to make a difference to other people, either to influence their behavior or make them feel better or make them feel worse or, you know, whatever it is. So, so I always try and be aware of that when I talk about something like sports psychology is let's not see sports psychology as something that happens from a sports psychologist necessarily to somebody else. Right. Let's rather think about the process of, um, of understanding ourselves into motion, emotionally and cognitively better. Mm. And, and then if you ask that question, at what level of the game does it make a difference to understand yourself emotionally better or at what stage, stage of the game does it make a difference to have better concentration? You know, then it's a kind of an easy answer. Well, at all at, at all levels of the game. Now, you know, it, it might be useful to talk to a sports psychologist, but I can promise you that you will find people with good psychological techniques and methods and suggestions amongst your teammates. Uh, you know, with your coach, your opponent, 
uh, th they're just so many people that it's interesting to talk to and interesting to hear their point of view. And, you know, the other thing is, well, you just got to try stuff. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's got a suggestion, well, try it out. And I, I'm not going to name any names, but, um, you know, I, I play amateur squash. I'm a, I'm a great lover of, of squash. And, and a, a couple of months ago, I, I met someone at a training session and we had a couple of games and he, and I said to him, do you want to come and play competitively for our club? Because he was, a, you know, by our standards, he was a good player. And he said to me, no, he gets too anxious. And, um, and we had a couple of conversations and he knew I was a sports psychologist and we tried to, tried to chat a couple of things through. And I think we played maybe three times in total. And each time he lost under pressure. So each time he's good enough that, you know, he's a bit better than me. And he was kind of getting into a position where he could have won the game and then he lost. And then as it happened, I didn't play in a team match last week, but one of my friends played this person and was two love down and then beat him three, two. Yeah. And this is a man who's probably in his mid fifties and he loves the game of squash. He wants to play it. He wants to be fit. Um, but he is troubled and has been troubled for years by this anxiety um, and has not yet found a solution. On that subject of pressure, um, this is a topic that I think anyone who's ever played any level of sport or not even sport, everyone's experienced that that level of pressure and that fear of sort of bottling under that pressure. Yeah. When we look at... Um, let's look at the isolated sport of football mm. in your experience in, in the many years you spent in the game and you've worked mm. at, you know, as you have, you mentioned Chelsea and, and other um, with other athletes, what part of that sport or even an individual skill have you found seems to affect players the most in terms of pressure? Is it maybe uh, something as isolated as a penalty kick? Is it, yeah. What what do you find is is the thing that people struggle most with when it comes to pressure, and why? Yeah. Penalties are are pretty bad. <laughs> um, you know that those are pretty tough, mm. um, and I, I I think the consequences are are so high. Um, it's not something they normally do. Um, you know they, they spend a lot of time running and kicking, and then uh, a lot of times footballers are are hopefully in a flow state. They're reacting to circumstances. Um, so, you know, when you go back to that thing of having time to think, they don't normally have time to think, um, whereas a penalty, there's a lot of time to think, and you really have to manage, uh, your time as you execute that skill. So I'd say a penalty is definitely one. Um, I think another one, and, you know, those of you who follow football and Chelsea in particular will know that, um, the, 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 the second half of last season for Chelsea was a very difficult period. And that was, you know, I, I was quite involved and, and that was, that was really tough, you know, losing a lot of games and just really trying to keep the team together, keep people motivated, keep people seeing opportunities to succeed. Um, that was hard. And, and it's, it's also really hard to do that without blaming people, you know, and, and it's so easy just to go, oh, well, you know, you're all lazy or, you know, you all just don't care as much as we care. Or if I was there, I'd be doing so much better. You know, it's so easy to do that kind of thing. Um, but to ask yourself the question, how come a group of highly motivated, highly disciplined, highly professional, extremely competitive 
young men. How come this is not happening? You know, that's quite an interesting question. Yeah. And I wonder if where sort of expectation um, comes into that, because if you look at both those examples in terms of that team, they're a team that, you know, with, with all that was going on around it, was expected to win. I know a lot of people expected big things. I mean, with a with a penalty, if you go to take a penalty, you're expected to score. I think in this era of um, XG stats, a penalty is probably close to a, as one expected goal as you can get. Yeah. Do you think it's that expectation that, that, that builds and adds on the pressure? You know, that's an interesting one because in general footballers and football is expectation averse mm. so in general a football manager will try to play down expectations yeah and they'll try to say we're not the favorites the other team are good blah 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 if you watch boxing it's the opposite yeah they're going i'm definitely going to beat you and you know i'm I, I watch a lot of ufc and you may be aware there's a middleweight fight uh, coming up uh, on saturday between a South African and an American and the South Africans going, I'm just better than him. You know, in that South African's mind, at least the way he's saying it, there's no expectation that he would lose. Mm. So he's embracing expectation. Whereas footballers tend to, to shy away from expectation. And I, I think then it, it can't be the expectation itself. You know, that, that can't be the, 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 the determinant of how well somebody performs. I think there are other uh, issues. And, you know, I, I, I know um, at, at Chelsea, one of the things we used to talk about was fear versus danger. And what we tried to say is um, danger is a real thing. Uh, fear is, uh, fear is a, it's just a feeling. Um, now, sometimes fear can tell you something useful, but sometimes it's better just to bypass the fear and focus on the danger. And we used to say to the footballers, when you're playing a football match, what is dangerous is man ball space. That's what's dangerous. Those are the only things that can hurt you. Fear might be consequences. It's a big match, uh, the opposing fans, you know, my family watching on TV, you could be scared of all of that stuff, but that can't actually make a difference. Um, so that was something we tried to uh, get across to them. And, you know, in terms of expectations, maybe that is a little bit, is that an expectation is not actually a real thing. Yeah. Because if it was, it would either be good or bad. It can't be good in one sport and bad in another sport. Mm -hmm. um, so I would group expectation along with the, in the fear category, and I go, well, actually, Rather than trying to fight about should we be expected or shouldn't we be expected, let's just go, I don't really care. I'm not that into expectation. Let's just go and do the job. Mm -hmm. That's that's really interesting because I'm I'm a big fan of the UFC myself and, and that is that is really interesting because as as you said, it is a sport you really, really see anyone say they're expected to lose. And it, and if you do no. that, the pundits are already talking about you as if you've lost. Um that's it. What do you think it is about that that sport then? Is it a case of, you know, because it's such a visceral sport and there is, yeah. you know, physical danger involved, you know, yeah. it reminds me of um, something Robert Green talks about where he, where he says, you know, you, 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 you're fighting on death ground and that brings out, you know, another level in you. Yeah. yeah. Do you think it's something to do with the, the type of, of sport 
um, that, you know, combat sports is where confidence is, you know, a much bigger player than it is in other sports? Yeah. yeah okay. So it's a really interesting question. And, and it kind of connects into something that, um, so some, so, so some, some animal societies are hierarchical and some are not. Uh, so, uh, so lion society, for example, is hierarchical. Wolf society is hierarchical. Uh, a, a lot of primate societies. In fact, I think probably all primate societies are hierarchical, including us. And amongst those hierarchical societies, you have to have ways of establishing the hierarchy. So, you know, and in human society, obviously, we've got a fairly, well, we like to think of it as a fairly sophisticated set of ways of establishing a hierarchy. But one of the most basic ways of establishing a hierarchy is fighting. So lions fight, chimpanzees fight, and human beings fight. But there are two kinds of fighting. There is fighting to the death, and there is fighting to submission. Now, lions fight to the death. So when two male lions get into a fight, the one is going to get killed. I, I think, I'm not totally sure about this, I think hippos also, they fight to the death. You can't suddenly go during a fight, oh, I give up, and the other one's going to go, fine, 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 you know, just, just get out of here and everything's going to be okay. But wolves fight to submission. And human beings generally fight to submission. And we actually have a trigger in us that can cause us to submit involuntarily. If we believe that we are in a dangerous circumstance, we can make the calculation that we are better off asking for mercy than we are getting involved in a fight. And that's a real thing because mercy exists in human society. But if that trigger gets flicked in an MMA fight, you will not be afforded that mercy until the referee dives in and over your unconscious body. So you've got to be really, really sure that you're staying well away from that notion that you could ever possibly beg for mercy. And, and this is why you would hear these guys saying, I'm prepared to die. You know, you'll hear Sean Strickland saying that um, Israel Adesanya famously said it, you know, in the fifth round of that fight against Gastelum, uh, you know, you could actually read his lips and he goes, I am prepared to die. Now, he probably isn't. You know, he probably wouldn't have got, gone in if there'd been a knife fight or something, but he's got to get his head into that state that there will be no submission here. Yeah. So I think that possibly has got something to do with the, the importance of being very, very confident, or at least feeling that you got feeling that backing down is not an option. And with a sport like that, where you know emotions are uh, flying at that level, and there's so much confidence involved, where you have to be confident. Oh. Do you think that that level of confidence and and almost arrogance in some cases going into um, about when that person loses? Does that yeah. make the failure so much harder to come back from? Because I think when you've got two guys, like you mentioned, like Sean Strickland and, and Drickus Duplessis, when yeah. one of those guys loses, after everything they've been saying to each other, it's 
it just seems like a really hard internal conversation you're going to have to have with yourself in the morning. Well, I mean, it just seems so rough. And I, and I think that's probably the reason why a lot of us don't fight. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, amongst other things. But, you know, the reason why I still play squash is that I don't care if I lose. You know, mm. I, I can I can cope with that. And, and you know, the, the one thing I say is I think the people who compete the most, I'm a lifelong competitor. But the reason why I am is because I'm actually not that competitive. So win, lose, I don't really care. Whereas a really competitive person probably is not going to end up competing their whole lives because the stakes are just too high. Yeah. And, and it is... So for sure, you know, the idea of getting knocked unconscious by another human being, especially a human being that you don't like, that's, that, that's just not tolerable for me. You know, I, I, I just couldn't do that. And, and it's interesting because in boxing, for example, you know, some of the guys can really manage their careers to the point where they're not ever going to get knocked out or some of them don't ever lose. Whereas in MMA, you're having so many fights that it seems that no matter how good you are, you're going to come short eventually. Yeah. And then you've got to see, can these guys actually cope? And, you know, the, the one example that I can think of is Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Um, his first ever knockout, he actually does a, a reaction video to his own knockout. I don't know if you've seen it, yeah. but he, he watches his own fight and he commentates on his own fight. And as he knows that the knockout is coming, he's, you know, he's hamming it up a bit, but he's kind of freaking out. He's going, oh, here it comes, here it comes. And then, you know, suddenly the knockout happens. And, and what he's doing there is he's sort of saying, well, this is survivable. Right. And Sean Strickland, when he got knocked out by, um, what's the guy's name? The, the, the big guy, the light heavyweight now, the Brazilian. Oh, um, Pereira. Alex that's, Pereira? Yeah, yeah. Yes. When he got knocked out by Alex Pereira, he went, oh, that sucks. You don't want to be someone else's highlight reel. Mm. And I, I think, you know, while I'm not advocating getting knocked out, these guys are actually showing a lot of psychological resilience because they're actually able to say a knockout is not shameful. It's not the end of the world. It's not, I'm not the only one. They don't personalize it. So they're actually showing a lot of very strong psychological coping techniques to deal with what to a normal person would be psychologically devastating. Mm, yeah. Now, this is something that is um, prevalent in both of these sports. And when I think about football in particular, when this question gets asked, who are the best guys in training? Mm. A lot of the time, the answer isn't who you'll expect. And it's not someone that, lights up uh, the big stage. I think yeah. there's a famous example. Um, I can't remember the player's name, but there was a guy at Man United and everyone said, in training, no one could touch this guy. But he didn't really go on to have a, a stellar career. I think he played in the, he ended up playing in the championship. But mm. what is it? There must be something that gets lost in the transition between performing in training versus performing in the moment. How does yeah. it differ? What is getting lost exactly? Well... So, so first of all, you get some individuals who are exceptionally good at training and exceptionally good in the match. Yes. And, you know, to go back to Petacek, he was one of them. You know, always trained at an incredibly high level and then played at an incredibly high level. Um, but for sure, you get some people who are the other way around. Um, and you get some people, I'm just trying to think. Um, 
I, I can't really think of a footballer that I, I mean, off the top of my head, one doesn't come to mind who was yeah. great in training and bad in a match. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, maybe there are some, but maybe what's happening is they're just getting away with the fact that training is not match intensity. Right. So they sometimes just look a little bit better than what they are. But, but you know, certainly it is a real phenomenon. And if you take the squash playing friend of mine, you know, he's much better in training than he is in a match. And the reason why is because he carries a naturally fairly high level of anxiety. And that anxiety um, is productive in a training session where the external threat is not high. But in a match situation, then his natural anxiety plus the match anxiety is too much. And that kind of disables him. That would be the mechanism by which somebody could be good at training, but bad in a match. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's probably more true of, say, Olympic athletes who don't actually get to compete that often, certainly not on the highest stage. Whereas in football, you know, one of the reasons why the guys get pretty tough is they play a lot of matches and they get quite used to it. You know, if you or I were to walk out in front of 42,000 people would be fairly freaky experience, but that's because we don't do it that often. You know, if we did it twice a week for three years, we'd pr probably be fairly used to it by the end of it. Um, in terms of the guys who, who don't train well and play well, um, I think, you know, the, the obvious and classic example would be Eden Hazard, who was a terrible trainer, um, but amazing in a match. And this guy just had a relatively... Uh, he just needed quite a lot of excitement to, you, he's a thrill seeker and, and mm -hmm. he just needed to be exciting and training often wasn't that exciting for him. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then also he wasn't, you know, he wasn't that motivated by results. He just loved the game. Uh, you know, a lot of times when he was training, his three little boys would be watching training and then he'd walk straight off the training session and he'd go into a, like 2v2 with his, with his little kids because um, he just loved football. Um, and you know, the, the one thing I always remember is that he, he would, he would trip his own kids. He would foul his own kids. Um, and you know, I, I think what he was doing is, you know, remember he was the most foul player in the premier league, yeah. but he never used to complain about it. He just used to go, well, it's part of the game. And I think mm. he was trying to teach his kids that. Wow. Yeah. The polar opposite to Jack Grealish. Um, when I think this is the subject I, I find quite fascinating is this, Motivation versus discipline. And when I think of high yeah. performers over an extended period of time, one yeah. of uh, my favorite players is Thiago Silva because I watched a video of him talk about what match day looks like for him. And it's obviously now he's in his late 30s and it's yeah. not just a case of turn up, eat the food, you know, warm up train. It's, you know, pre match work. It's, and then when the game finishes, it's hours of, stretching it's ice baths it's everything to try and maintain that level and still be able to play yeah. at the highest level at his age so yeah. in terms of career longevity and high performance over an extended period of time is mm. discipline more important than motivation um well you know it, it's kind of I, I i think obviously those terms would have to be defined mm. Uh, clearly if you were to really distinguish between the two because you could kind of argue that you need motivation to be disciplined yeah but I, I think if people were to use those as two opposing terms 
um, they would use motivation as being a, a, a kind of emotional state or a, a sort of excitement. Um, and then discipline would be a, a, a more uh, conscious, deliberate decision. And, you know, th there's the psychological distinction um, and th there's a psychologist, um, Daniel Kahneman, and, and he talks about a system one and a system two. Uh, so the system one is that part of ourselves that's uh, reactive, intuitive, instinctive, uh, short-term, emotional, and then system two would be deliberate, considered, careful, um, and that's the fast and the slow. And then in that way, you could say, well, maybe let's think of uh, motivation as being more fast thinking and discipline as more slow thinking. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I, I think you, you, you know, for me, I mean, I'm a, I'm a 51 year old amateur athlete. And for me, one of the key parts of, and I, I was just chatting to a friend about this, I was playing squash with him yesterday. And one of the things that surprised me about getting older is how little fitness and strength I've lost. Um, certainly a lot less than I thought I was going to lose. You know, if, when I was 30, you asked me what I'd be like when I was 50, I would have gone, you know, walking stick. Um, th there's a lot less of that. The decline is a lot slower, but the injury risk is much, much higher. And what gets you as you age is not the slow decline of fitness and strength. It's the precipitous decline due to injury or the fact that you're just not doing the work. You're just not staying fit right. because you will get fit very unquickly when you get old. So you've, but, but if you have the discipline to not get injured and you've got the discipline to keep working and stay fit, you can be surprisingly youthful. Mm. Um, so Tiago Silva, you know, just to add a bit of context, I don't know if top speeds get released publicly, but the guy is running with top speeds of, I think in the mid 33K an hour, maybe high 33K an hour, which as a Premier League footballer is a decent top speed. And he's 38. Um, I think Olivier Giroud, you know, and I can't remember how old he was when he left Chelsea, but he was 32, 33, was hitting high top speeds and, you know, was in fantastic physical shape. Um, and yes, for sure, a lot of that is, is discipline. Um, but, you know, not just discipline, it's, it's a well-applied uh, scientific uh, regime uh, th that they're using. Um, so, yeah, but for sure, you, you know, I, I, I think, you, you know, there the, the are no, the, the no old casual athletes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you get old athletes and you get casual athletes, but you don't get both. Um, so, yeah. One athlete I'd love to ask you about, and I know that you uh, like to use this guy in, um, you know, in, in numerous examples you've given throughout, you know, your talks and, and other interviews I've heard you on, is Thierry Henry. And mm. um, there's this quote by him, you, you say, where I've got it here, a great player does what the game tells him to do. Now, yeah. how would you best explain that quote? Yeah, well, first of all, I just have to say, I, I only met him once. Uh, I mm. had dinner with him once. So that's my kind of name drop. It, it's not no. like, you know, we work together. Um, no. But, but it was me asking him advice. 
And um, I was actually working with a professional squash player at the time. And the squash player and I were discussing when do you attack and when do you, when do you be careful? And I thought, in a way, this is kind of analogous to a striker shooting or passing. So I said to Thierry, when do you shoot and when do you pass? And I was kind of expecting to say, well, when you shoot, you've got to be brave. And, you know, when you pass, you don't have to be as brave. You've got to be, uh, you've got to think about your teammates. And, you know, and was it sort of bravery versus unselfishness? You know, was this it? And he just went, the great player does what the game tells him to do. And to me, that is a really fascinating comment because for him, it wasn't even really a decision. And it certainly wasn't this, this balance between selfishness and selflessness. Or it wasn't this balance between aggression and caution. And, you know, we do need balance in life. But when I can avoid balance, I like to. Because it can be really hard to find the right level on the continuum. And what Thierry Henry is really saying is drop your ego because your ego is what is trying to determine the selfishness or unselfish. He's saying drop your ego, listen to the game. And you should, instead of trying to work out where exactly on the spectrum of aggressive or cautious you should be, you should be fully, fully invested in trying to understand what is happening in this game. And then do it respond 100%. And what was fascinating to me about that statement is that it wasn't about him. You know, he, he never said to me, well, I've got this tremendous judgment or, you know, I'm a genius or I'm so brave, I can always make the right decision. He's just like, well, the game told me to shoot my shot. That was it. And, and he's, you know, that then is a lot simpler for him. And also, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier to cope because you're not taking on this tremendous weight of responsibility. It's not like, oh, should I shoot? But if I miss, all my teammates are going to be glaring at me. It's just, well, the game told me to shoot and I shot. One thing um, I'd love to ask you about on this area of high performance um, is ego. You mentioned it there. Yeah. Now, is a certain level of ego, uh, can that be a good thing? Because there's obviously numerous examples of where ego has you know, come to a player's detriment. You know, I, I think of MMA, you look at someone like Conor McGregor that, you know, right. at one point but believed his own hype, believed that he didn't have to go that extra yard in training and then yeah. obviously suffered the consequences. But when I think of good examples, I think of people like, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, who everyone says, oh, he's an egomaniac. But I think for him, that works to his advantage. Or, you know, a man you'll be, you'll be familiar with, Jose Mourinho, when he came over to this country, he famously yeah. said, I am the special one. Um, yeah. You know, there's a level of ego in there, but I think for him, it almost acts as a as a superpower if you can keep it in check. So, yeah, what is your opinion on ego in in high performance sport? Yeah, yeah, I mean, a great question again. Just a small correction. Okay, Joe Mourinho never said I am the special one. He said I am a special one. Wow, and that's a big difference, and the media. Was it was not useful for the media to notice that distinction? No, of course not. Talking about, he was saying something along the lines of, you know, in order to coach in the Premier League, you've got to be a special coach, or you've got to be at a good level, or blah blah blah. And he said there are special coaches out there, and I am a special one. Right. So it wasn't nearly as arrogant as it sounded when they all called him the special one. 
Um, now, I'm not sure if he ever actually corrected reporters on that. <laughs> Maybe he quite liked the sound of it afterwards. I don't know. Um, you know, so so to come back to this notion of ego. So, so first of all, you know, I'm, I'm a psychologist and I've been a psychologist for, uh, I don't even know, uh, 20 something. 20 whatever, long time. Um, I don't really know what ego is, to be quite honest. You know, I, 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 people talk about it a lot. And as you've pointed out, I've used the term myself. But when I use it, I just kind of hope people sort of know what I mean, because I don't really know what ego is. I don't have a definition of it. And certainly in the way that it gets used in modern society, where it gets used quite freely, I think if you were to ask people for a definition, you're not really going to get a satisfactory one. If I was to try and define it, um, I would say uh, it might have something to do with an estimation of your ability. And it might have something to do with an estimation of your status. Those, you know, that, that's maybe where I would kind of go. So, so if we say Conor McGregor, maybe he overestimated his ability. Yeah. Uh, and and were somebody to say, I am the special one, we might think that they had overestimated their status. Um, so, so then what would my comment be? And, you know, this comes back to uh, a general comment on psychological resilience in general, is that in general, psychologically, what we're looking for is accuracy. So, I wouldn't want a person to overestimate their status or ability, and I wouldn't want them to underestimate their status or ability. I think if they had an accurate estimation of their status or ability, that would be the healthiest place to be and also the most productive place to be. I don't think it would help anybody to think that they are more important or better than they really are. Mm -hmm. Something Roy Keane said um... It must have been over a year ago now. It was a Monday night football. They were talking about psychology and, and mental health. And he said that, in his opinion, or the players he's seen, he says that a level of, just a small level of self-doubt is can be a good thing and yeah. part of any top sportsman's natural journey and that it keeps them in check and it, it keeps them wanting to improve. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know... Uh, well, yes, you know, if it worked for Roy Keane, you know, mm. who's anybody to argue with that? And and uh, I, I do think, you know, even in life, we should all certainly double check ourselves. You know, we're human beings. We're prone to error. And part of this whole fast and slow thinking split that we've got is the role of the slow is to check up on the fast. Um, now, there are times when that is useful and there are times when that is not useful and also what we actually found is that in the game of football um self-doubt is more useful the further back you go so a goalkeeper you would want to to i don't know if self-doubt is quite the right word but you'd, you'd want a goalkeeper to be double checking himself you know like am i standing in the right position where's where's my near post uh, what are my defenders doing? Uh, you know, am I in the right stance? Uh, do I know what's happening next? That kind of thing. I think that would be quite useful. 
where's the f and you know then defenders for sure you want them double checking where's my my teammate what did he just say to me uh you know we're having good communication is he listening uh but the further up you get the less in a game of football i think self-doubt is useful by the time you get to the striker you just want the guy you know didier drogba said to florent maluda once don't think too much um you know and that's just just go and kick the ball or head the ball now i've worked in <clears throat> i i worked in a um a football academy for uh, a club that's currently in the championship but i i didn't do anything fancy there it was more of an operational thing but one thing i noticed um with the way uh in which psychology was used with these young athletes is that it was it was almost used in a, a reactive way rather than part right. of their development it was a case yeah. of if one of them was struggling oh let's get him to see a sports psychologist rather than it being part of you know their weekly routine why do you think or i don't even know if that still is a problem but why yeah. do you think that is do you think it's time resources maybe just a priority problem yeah i i would go with priority um and i think in the top academies now it is a requirement to have a sports psychologist okay the top football academies and, and I, th I think what is happening is that they're forcing people to change their priorities um because you know, I mean, I, I say I've been a psychologist a long time, but it's only been 25 years. You know, that, that's not a long time in human history. But the, but the change in the acceptance of psychology in that short space of time has been dramatic. Um, you know, when I started working, people didn't want to acknowledge that they had a psychologist or, you know, work with a psychologist. And, and that has changed. Um, so... So, yeah, for, for me, it would have a lot to do with being a priority problem. And then I think also, and, and this is where maybe psychologists have to take some responsibility themselves, is they can't be reactive. You know, they, they've got to make a better case for how so psychology should be part of everyday life. And they should be getting better at, uh, at teaching psychological skills rather than just solving psychological problems. Um, so, you know, I, I would kind of put that one on the psychologist and say, well, have a go at that. And obviously the positive psychology field led by Martin Seligman uh, is a, um, you know, a, a, a good example of maybe how, how things could be done. And last question before we move in just to our, our wind down questions. Um, this is just something that, that I was thinking about earlier. There, there may be nothing to it, but. I wanted to ask you as someone who's worked with players um, in clubs and for their country, do you notice any sort of mentality or psychological differences when you're dealing with an individual playing for their country as opposed to a club that they're not geographically linked to in any way? Well, I've worked a lot more with clubs than I have of course, with country. Yeah. But it did feel like with the country, there's no question, obviously, of loyalty. There are no options. You know, you, you couldn't go anywhere else. Mm. Um, there, I think, is a greater sense of pride. There's a greater sense of responsibility towards your country people. Um, and, but, you know, having said that, clubs are real things, you know, and clubs matter. And, that is something that would be important to me is to you have to induct players into the club and, and you have to 
make the players feel part of the club. And you have to make the players feel a responsibility towards the fans. And, you know, fans, fans really, really matter. The, 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 club belong, the club is the fans and it belongs to the fans. And, and it is the fact that they care that makes it important. You know, if the fans didn't care, it wouldn't matter who won or lost. And then you wouldn't get people trying and you wouldn't get good play. And, you know, so even if you just are into the beauty of football, the source of that is the passion of the fans. And, and you really have to try to connect the players to that. And obviously it's harder if you're only going to be around for a couple of seasons. And it's harder if you feel hard done by or, you know, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, but, yeah, a country, it's a bit easier. Um. There were a few uh, questions that um, were sent in on our social media when we mentioned uh, you were coming on the show. Um, I'm just going to pick two of them maybe. Uh, sure. The first one is, is there a specific team in a specific year that you feel now most proud of being part of? Um, wow. Sure, that, that is, that's hard to say. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say one. I, I'd maybe say um, the double winning team uh, and then the two Champions League winning teams for, for different reasons. Yeah. Um, maybe that's too easy. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, but when I think of the, the you know, the, the collection of personalities, uh, including the managers um, in, in all of those three teams. You know, I mean, the one team had, you know, was the great Chelsea team of uh, Petr Cech, John Terry, uh, Carvalho, and then, you know, the midfield of Balak, Essien, Deco, uh, and, you know, the forwards, oh, sorry, Lampard, you know, how, how can I miss Lampard? Yeah. Uh, you know, Ashley Cole, um, uh, Bozingwa, Joe Cole, Didier Drogba, Nicholas Anelka, um, you know, ha, ha, I mean, th those guys are kind of, they are legends, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and they, they, you know, they proved it with, with their results, um, you know, and I, I actually, I had a conversation with Frank Lampard and I mean, how, did he, I think he scored 249 goals for Chelsea, I think it was 249 goals, 520 appearances and i said to him you know the average chelsea player in the squad right now is closer to my goal and appearance count than they are to your goal and appearance count i mean that just sort of shows what 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 a legend you know he he is and yeah. um and then you know you've got guys like peter chick obviously with an insurmountable uh, goalkeeping record um you know th th those are special people i, I learned a lot from them you know it, it, incredible incredible time just as a side note, um, just piggybacking on that question there, um, you mentioned the Champions League there. When I see footballers go out onto the pitch for a Champions League game, I don't know if it's something to do with, you know, the the that they're always at night or that it yeah. just seems like something different. And it seems to you can see it on the players' faces that they're feeling different emotions than they feel in a normal, you know, Premier League game. But what, what do you think is going on in in the psyche of a player? you know, in like a Champions League final or a Champions League knockout game because it seems uh, 10 times more intense. I know, and I think it is, you know. I and I mean, I, I think partly they've done an incredibly good job of of giving 
the, the competition meaning. You know, people really, really care. And, and UEFA have, you know, I mean, just the music, you know, we, we all know the music. I mean, it's so epic and, you know, that flag that they wave and, and that kind of stuff. It's, and uh, I mean, we're human beings. We're suckers for that kind of stuff. You know, we, we love it. Um, and then obviously it's mainly a knockout competition. You're never that far away from winning it. You know, mm. so you've always got hope. It's, there's always a possibility where's the league. It's more of a grind. Um, you know, and, and everything has consequence. Like every single match matters, um, just in terms of results. Uh, yeah, it's um, it, it's amazing. It's a it's a brilliant, epic competition. Amazing. Well, the last uh, fan question I, I will ask you, um, and I'm sure there there's only a limited amount you can really answer to this question. But they said. Jose Mourinho seems like the good, uh, the prime example of a good man manager. What is he like as a manager behind closed doors? Well, there's a part of that that I can't answer, but the way I will answer that is every single player that I spoke to. So, so what I what I won't answer is my professional experience of him. I'll leave yeah. that out. I'll, I'll yeah. talk about my kind of. Uh, I'll take it at one layer removed from that and every single player that I spoke to about what he was like in his first time at Chelsea couldn't speak more highly of him and couldn't say more about how they would run through brick walls for him so uh you know every single one backed up that they thought he was fantastic and and you know they they responded to him as a human being they respected uh, how innovative he was and um and you know what he what he brought to the Premier League and what he brought to the game. Well, thank you for giving us an answer on that one. Um, well, my last question, and this is something I ask every uh, guest. It's not relevant to the topic. It could be anything. It could be your work. It could be your fam. Anything. But right now, for Tim Harkness, what makes life worth living? Uh, well. I'm in a period of transition. Um, so I just left a job that I had for 14 years and a job I loved, you know, I, a job that I, I consider myself extremely lucky to have had. So, you know, it's something I'm incredibly grateful for. But I'm in a period of transition and, um, you know, I'm, I'm 51 and I've realized that this uh, new adventure is something that I'm quite excited about. So, you know, just, just to have something new, to have something different, um, it's, it's uh, making me feel excited. So, yeah, a bit of change. Um, well, for everyone listening and watching right now, and they may really have uh, enjoyed listening to you today and they want to, find out more from yourself and, and find your other works where is the best place for these guys to find more of your content um well i, I suppose the the book i wrote um called 10 rules for talking a book about communication um which you might think is a little bit odd coming from a sports psychologist um but uh but yes th that's probably the best way uh you know you could look me up on linkedin but i'm, I'm not terribly active on that so uh, yeah the book i will certainly recommend that it is 
not on this bookshelf it's on the bookshelf in my bedroom um oh, well. i i will make sure all the links are in the description below for Brilliant. everyone to check that out um oh, tim well. thank you so much for joining me today it's been an absolute yeah. pleasure this is one of the the most enjoyable conversation i've had in a while so thank you oh, for well. bringing so much value to the show my friend oh well. thanks so much for having me great great to talk and th thanks for the great questions thank you so much for watching if you enjoyed that video please subscribe to the freedom pack channel and consider clicking here to watch another video that I think you'll enjoy.